Uh, with that, let's pray, and we'll look at our story in Mark chapter 5. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this unfolding story of Mark, and uh, he does move at a, a, a quick clip covering many of these uh, just wonderful stories that have been documented by your spirit so that we could have and to hold and to uh, be led by about um, Jesus' time here on earth. Uh, Lord, as we look at this story today, I ask that you would help us um, to understand what was said in context, that we would be able to immerse ourselves in the story, that we would see it and feel it and understand um, the plight of this man that we're going to encounter today. Um, Father, he has got quite the story, and even though his story is very dramatic, he embodies each of us um, in our life with you uh, before knowing you that we each were in bondage to sin and that you have set us free. And so, Father, we pray um, that you would help us to understand the story, that you would help us to see, uh, if we are Christians, what you have done within our lives of setting us free in Christ. Uh, For those of us that maybe are unsure where we stand or are still um, sort of examining the claims of Christ, we ask that you would help them to reach the place where they could accept Christ by faith and that they too would be uh, set free and redeemed from the bondage of sin that they are presently in. Uh, We are grateful, Lord, for your mercy in our lives. We are grateful uh, for the transformation that you make possible Um, through Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 5, verse 1. Then they came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave gave them permission, and coming out of the unclean spirits, entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion 
and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described it to them, how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Father, we do thank you for the story. We ask that you would guide us now, uh, help us to understand what happened and how it applies to us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so up, up there, the, the corresponding stories, I always like to kind of give you guys where you can find the other versions of the story. Uh, Matthew's account is in chapter 8, verses 28 through 34, and Luke records it also in chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Um, this is a continuation from last week's story. This is, um, this is by, I probably say this every week, but this is by far one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I... I I love the story of this man, not so much the beginning, but, but, I, but I so much uh, identify with him sort of in the last scene when he's begging Jesus to follow him, and Jesus says, uh-uh, you stay here. Uh, I think because of that part of the story, I, I, there's just something about the story that I, I love. Um, so to sort of get us on track, where the story picks up, we, we literally are in the midst of, of a story. Last week, there was the crowds, and um, Jesus says to the disciples, hey, let's go to the other side. Da-da-da-da. Remember, the other side is scary. It's, it's not a place that any self-respecting Jew would go. They started in Capernaum, which is sort of the, the north, a little bit west-ish, west-ish part of um, the Dead Sea. I believe the Dead Sea's 13 miles north to south, about six miles east to west. On the far side in the Gerasenes, you see Curse. Kersey, and that's where they're headed. Uh, this eastern side of the lake is the Decapolis. Literally, it's the, the region of the Ten Cities. Um, it's Gentile territory. This is not a place where Jews would want to go or desire to go. They, they, they were hated. You know, the, in the story, sometimes I hear people say, oh, there were pigs, and it's an unclean animal, and the Jews weren't supposed to have pigs. And this is, was Jesus. And it's like, no, 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 these are Gentiles. Of course they have pigs. Bacon's okay for Gentiles. And, uh, but, but, but it also highlights the uncleanness of the area. And, and why would they go over there? And so Jesus says, hey, we're going to go to the other side. Maybe because the crowds wouldn't follow him over there. I, I don't know. But when he said to go to the other side, we hear that, this is scary. This is spooky. You want us to cross over the, the Sea of Galilee, this this body of water that represents death and, and Hades, and it wasn't a safe place. The Jewish people in general were not seafaring people. We saw that the story took place as the sun set, so then you add the additional fear factor of it was nighttime. And in the midst of this, this, this huge storm kicks up, and the disciples are terribly afraid. I'd kind of... Um, stumbled across last week, the thing that cracked me up, you know, there was the calm before the storm, the calm in the storm, the storm in the storm, the calm after the storm, and then the storm after the calm. (laughs) 
That there's this, there's, it starts out calm. They're a little bit nervous. All of a sudden, there's the storm, but Jesus is calmly asleep in the back. And then they wake him up, and we see the storm of the disciples in the midst of the storm. And then we see Jesus calm the storm. And it wasn't just the wind. It was the, the wind and the water. Instantaneous, mega calmness happened. It wasn't like the wind just coincidentally stopped and then uh, the, the storm was slowly dwindling. It was like the wind came to a halt, the water turned to glass, and it was horrifying to these guys. And so in the calm, we end in verse 41, they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And we don't hear anything from them in today's story, even though they're still very much a part of the story. So that's where we are in the, in the, in the midst of this. And then in verse 1, we see that they came to the other side. Da-na-na. They're going to they're gonna land on the shore. It seems like this is probably daybreak, or I don't know if it's still nighttime. We don't know. Um, I, I will say, in case I forget through this story, the story isn't like they land on shore, they're there for like a meal, and then they leave. Um, they're on the other side. Uh, I want you guys to get this. Um, so I'll keep singing for you all. If that counts as singing, I don't know. Um, but the story probably happens over the course of a few days. Because we see that they go out, the guy goes out to the countryside, and then the people come back, and then they're asked... So this isn't like they're just there and then they leave. Mark flies through this. But the reality for all of these things to happen, they're, they're there for probably a few days. And, and so they came to the other side of the sea, the country of the Gerasenes. So I've showed you on the, on the map sort of the location. They, they would be uneasy to be there. Not Jesus, but the disciples. This is a place that they wouldn't want to go. They've already seen that as they've crossed over, this huge storm kicked up, wondering if this was like, God's display that they shouldn't be going where they're going to see God in the boat calm the storm and to see the terror in them. And so there's, there's absence of their speech in the story, but it like just like, like from within me, what are they thinking? Like I gave the illustration last week of uh, at the baptismal site in Israel, you stand on, on the, the one side and literally from me to the back of the room, that's Jordan and there's machine guns on both sides and it's perfectly safe. It's my story and I'm sticking to it. And, uh, but it might not be so safe if you decided from the Israel side or the Jordanian side, you say, hey, let's go to the other side. And you swim across and you get to the other side, you're going to be met with some like, you're going to make the news. Like, you're going to be worldwide uh, an incident that, you're, that, you're, that everybody's going to know about. And so now they land on the other side, they get there, and they're greeted by a nice guy. Um, Verse 2, when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs, that's a little strange, with an unclean spirit met him. Okay, an unclean spirit, what What does this mean? Um, But just thinking of their reaction, we have the storm. Right when we touch base here, now there's this crazy lunatic. That's meeting us. Jesus, like, let's just go back. Like, like, like I, are they, I've gone a lot over the beach a lot with little small boats. And I'm like, are, there, are, like, are they still like, like ankle and knee deep trying to lift the boat out of the water? 
saying, Jesus, we can kind of, let's, let's maybe a couple miles down, you know, there's, we don't, we don't see them. The thing I've been thinking about, probably because I've been talking with Chris Guess a lot recently, is the, uh, it, 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 like, like the idea of missions and going out, and the, we've, as, as a church, have been called to partner and to go out and and to think of all the things that happen on mission trips, like if you go overseas, it's just a given that you're going to get some sort of sickness. Like that's, I've just resulted, like resolved in my mind that if you go overseas, you know, plan enough time so that you can get the, a stomach bug and then kind of get through it and then continue on or, you know, so you don't have to spend the whole time in the bathroom while you're there. Like give yourself a little window and the, the conflict that comes, and there's all sorts of fears that people have about going. And those fears so often keep us from, from venturing out and seeing what God is doing. And, uh, you know, Chris Guess and the Guest family, they're going to be with us for summer nights. And um, so whenever, I know next Sunday is the 11th. I forget the dates in between. But I said this morning, Chris and I were texting, and, and, I, and I said, hey, when do you guys leave again? I know it's pretty soon. And they leave on the 15th. So, so they literally are here as they're on the way out the door. So they're going to be with us this week. He's going to be sharing next Sunday. There's going to be a potluck afterwards. And, and then basically four days later, they're on a plane back to Romania. And he kind of said to me, he's like, hey, well, when's the team from GPC going to come? I'm like, I don't know. I'll, I'll float it out there. But they're, they're a group that could handle a, a team of people. And I know that a handful of people have expressed interest over the years. So uh, be praying about it. And you might have like, ah, there's fears because going to the other side. Like Romania is like the Mexico of Europe. That's, I'm just quoting Mihi and Chris, that it's, it's, it's kind of like the... the I love Mexico, so don't take that the wrong way. Like, I love Mexico. I go to Mexico. I have no problem going there. But it's kind of like within the EU, you can travel freely like you're in the United States, except into Romania. They check your passports, and they don't. It's just more of a third-world country. And so there's fears that keep people from going. But we're partnered with missionaries there that have said we would love to have a team come and see what we're doing and are all about. And, and, and so... Um, all I'm doing is planting a seed, and maybe if that's you, um, be praying about it. But here we are back to the other side, the crazy guy. Or all we know at this point is the unclean spirit greeted him immediately. The welcome committee from the Decapolis. And the description is even better. Verse 3. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. Okay, so basically they landed at a graveyard. It's like, oh man, like we hit a graveyard? Just as a little reminder how the Jews feel about dead bodies. Dead bodies equal unclean. If you're a good Jew, you don't go near dead bodies. And these tombs aren't Jewish tombs. Like this isn't a Jewish setting even, so it's like doubly bad. And so they land at a spot where there's tombs, and then this guy comes and he greets them. He had made his dwelling, his home among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore. Now you read that and you think, oh, that's a really sad story. Why would they bind him? Why would they do all this stuff? And I, we have to think in, in terms of, 
like self-preservation. And, and, and um, I know Joel and Judy used to go down to Gabriel House quite a bit. Uh, it's a handicapped me- uh, orphanage in, in Rosarito. And the first time I made it down there, it was before Anna and I were married, Gabriel House is named after Gabriel, this, this young man who has a, a, a pretty severe uh, mental disorder. And this couple, Ted and Rini, who retired to Mexico on his Air Force retirement or her Air Force, I forget, but they were retired there. They weren't there as missionaries. And they stumbled across this kid that was basically chained in a Mexican outhouse. And it wasn't out of, it wasn't cruelty. It was like the parents had no other option than to chain this child so that he wouldn't hurt himself. It was the only way they can contain him. With the resources that they had, it's heartbreaking. And Rainey says, Ted, we've got to take this kid and we'll, we'll, we'll take him and we'll care for him. And they did. And it started this orphanage to, to handicap children. And so when I see this story, I, I think of that same. This guy was somebody's child. He was... a. a a son of a mom, and, and he had fully exhausted all of their ability to, to care for him to, to the point when it's like the best thing we can do for this guy is chain him up. Let's chain him up, and we'll keep him safe, and we'll keep others safe from him. But none of that worked. He is dwelling among the tombs, and no one is able to bind him up anymore, even with a chain. Almost like a parenthetical statement here in verse 4. Why would they chain him up? Why is he not chained anymore? What was going on? Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. So, They can't contain this guy. No matter what they do, they can't keep him contained. Constantly, even worse, night and day, because that's a day to the Jewish person. It starts in the evening, goes to morning. He was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains. So here you have this poor, pitiful guy that they're trying to chain. They can't keep him chained. He keeps breaking out. And now he's like made his home in the tombs and around the hillside there. And people can hear him. You know, I think our cemetery is like not really a stone throw, but almost a stone throw. Like if you go, like if you're at the cemetery, you can see our lights. And I can only imagine like coming here at night and hearing like screeching. Because you could hear, if somebody was there screeching, you would hear it from here. Like how like we we call we we call the police when people are playing music too loud, <laughs> you know, like, like insane man screaming, just screaming nonstop among the tombs and in the mountains. Like kids, don't go and play over there. Like, okay, Johnny, you guys are allowed to play anywhere over there, but I don't want you going that way, because old what's his name's over there. And we also see in the midst of this, he's gashing himself with stones. This is, uh, the thing that this is distant from present day, I mean, there's a whole uh, troubled people that have uh, various issues that, are, that, that cut themselves to self-mutilate. 
Some speculate that he was trying to kill himself. Um, so it's really just this pitiful description of this man. It's, just, it's heartbreaking. Dwelt among the dead. He's, he's, they tried to shackle him and put on chains and it didn't work. He's screaming. He's gashing himself. Um, we, we see here that he's demon-possessed, and I'm probably not going to like spend a lot of time there because I don't want to get too distracted, but at a wrestling match. A few years ago, Anna and I went up to San Francisco. My, my family's kind of from that area, and San Francisco's like one of those places you can, you could literally get on a plane in the morning, go to San Francisco, spend the day in San Francisco, get in a plane that night, and come home. So it's like a great date day, like especially if you don't want to be away from the kids for too long. Um, and with Southwest, you know, you get like 49 cents to like <laughs> to get up there and back. And a few years ago, we did this. We went, and then my brother was there, and we were walking around with my brother and nephew. And Ann and I had tickets to the to the Giants game, and and so we we'd left my brother and nephew, and they're like, "Hey, you're safe to walk from from here to there, no problem." Whatever street, I wasn't really paying attention. I should have paid attention, but they said, "Don't go down that street." Because if you go down that street, that's like a really bad area. And neither one of us could really remember what street he said. And we didn't really want to text, like, hey, what street did you say? Like, eh, we're fine. Google Maps will take us there. So we walked down there. Let's just say we remember the street because we found the street. And we walked down the street. And to see just these men and women, some on drugs, some crazy, some probably demon-possessed. That, that we, just don't, we just don't think in those terms. Um, there are people that were in that location of San Francisco that we see on our streets that just like this man, through the course of their life, they've gone down all of the roads to try to get help but there was nothing that the system could, like the syst- like you just, there wasn't anything that could be done. Um, and before we move on, I like, I don't want us to distance ourselves too far from this guy. Because it's not like, oh, this is a really extreme situation. None of us are like that. Because the reality is, is this guy is a picture of the gospel. He's a, he's a picture of the transformed life. I'm not saying that he wasn't really demon-possessed. I totally 100% think he was demon-possessed. This really, truly happened. But he's this extreme picture that displays our situation apart from Christ or in Christ. And so I want us to identify with him more than we disassociate from him. In Ephesians 2.1, Paul writes, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So he's talking to believers. And he says, before Christ, you were like dead. You were uh, spiritually that fish that's floating down the river, dead, totally separate. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, he says, although you were former, formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, he says, you were an enemy of God. You were like this guy. And then Romans 6.6 6 says, Knowing that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, 
so that we no longer would be slaves, is what the New American Standard says. Some translations use the word bondage, so that you may no longer be in bondage to sin. The Bible makes it clear that apart from Christ, you're in bondage. You're enslaved. You are held in control of another. And so this guy might be dead in his sins and transgressions. He might be held down by Satan in ways that you weren't or I wasn't. But we were very much just as enslaved as this man was. So some of us, you might be enslaved by yourself, like your own vanity, your own desire to uh, keep up with the Joneses or to look like your peers. You might be enslaved because you're okay with your family cycle, whatever it is, repeating over and over and over again, and your family does it a certain way, and you've always done it this way, and you're going to follow the same bad habits just like you've always done. You might be enslaved because you don't see your, the value in yourself as God has created you. You see the lies or hear the lies that Satan pours into you and says that you're worthless, you're never going to measure up to anything, you fail all the time, you're listening to the wrong voices. You might be enslaved because you're a really good person. This is one of Satan's favorites. I'm okay because I'm a good person. I'm better than the guy that's on drugs walking down Grand Avenue in Escondido because I comb my hair and I brush my teeth and I have a belt on, I keep my pants up, I wear collared shirts, I don't swear, I don't drink, I pay my bills, I'm a productive member of society. The Bible would say you're enslaved in your self-righteousness. could be alcohol, could be drugs, it could be like, like the list is long. But it's easy to look at this guy and say, I'm better than this guy. I was never like that. When the reality is all of you were very much spiritually were just like that guy. I, I was. I'm, I, I hope I'm not offending you. I'm not offending me because I like identify with this story. I've already, I've already said that from the get-go. This is one of my favorite stories because it's such an awesome picture. And so we go to verse 6. It's kind of a weird story because Mark is piecing together in 21 sentences. Well, it's not 21 sentences, it's 21 verses. And he's taking the whole of this three days, and so he's giving, like, he'll say something, then he gives a little bit of a background. And then he'll say a little bit more that doesn't necessarily come in order because, remember, back at verse 2, when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Now we back up before that point. In verse 6, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. So kind of like as this motion is happening, Mark gives some background so that we have an idea of what's going on. So clearly, the boat is making its way to sea. This guy is up on this cliff. He's, there's, a, there's a couple miles of, of uh, geography that the story is playing with, and the guy sees Jesus coming on a boat. And when he sees him, he runs to him and he approaches him. And he says that he, re- he bowed down before him. He's doing all wonderful things. The demons within this man acknowledge who Jesus is. 
There's a warning to us because you can acknowledge who Jesus is. You can have all the right theology. You can have all the right doctrine, but you've never really truly believed. And so this man is confessing through the demons everything that's accurate, but there's no salvation. But he's bowing down. He's using great theology. He's, he bowed down before in verse 7, shouting with a loud voice. He said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? This is, this is like a street fight. This whole what business do we have, this is a, a, a Hebrew idiom, which it literally means what is it to me and you, but it, it expresses the, the idea that these two agendas are totally incompatible with one another. And so this, these demons see Jesus approaching, runs down, addresses Jesus for who he is, says, what business do we have together? Our agendas are totally incompatible. Why are you even here? Why are you? This is my turf, the Decapolis. You have the Jewish region. Stay out of my region. But, but he really doesn't say that because he, or they, however you want to handle this poor guy that's being controlled. They have no authority over Jesus. All they do is bow down before him. And they present this and they're pleading with him. Um, so he ran down and bowed before him. And he's shouting at him. And then we see the first of five times this word implore. This is like this desperate pleading. We're going to see, well, you'll see, just I'll point them all out. Don't worry, you won't miss them. So what they're imploring, imploring by God. So the demons are bowed down, acknowledging who Jesus is, imploring him, uh, don't torment me. Huh? <laughs> so legion within, they recognize that Jesus has come for a fight. And they don't want any business. Like, oh, like, don't torment me. Like, what can we do? Now Mark in verse 8 is going to give a little background. So while this is going on, he gives us some insight for he, that's Jesus, had been saying to him, this man who's now controlled by these, the demonic activity, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So, so somewhere in this story, Jesus sees the guy as he comes, and Jesus is saying, get out of the man, get out of the man, get out of the man. Before we get there, Mark kind of says that the, the demon's falling at his feet, pleading, like, don't torment me, don't torment me, don't torment me. This is like right out of Poltergeist, you know, like, well, not really this, but it's just like, no wonder we haven't heard anything from the disciples or about the disciples. They're sitting there, they're already horrified that Jesus just stopped the storm completely. And now they're met with this. Popping their tums or whatever, because it's like, it's like, I can't take any more of this. Like, like, this is a real scene. Verse 9, and he, Jesus, was asking him, like, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. It's speculated that this is a legion. They believe is about 6,000. So there's about 6,000 demons in him. And he the poor guy that has legion within him began to implore him again earnestly not to send them out of the country. Jesus, we're really comfortable in the Decapolis. 
Like, we're, we got this place. And uh, we'd really appreciate it if you'd allow us to stay in this region. We like, it's nice. Waterfront property. We don't bother any of your Jewish people. Like, and now Mark's going to give us some background or a commentary. Now, there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. We're going to see that there was a cliff. Um, can, can you go to the next slide, Abigail? Just to say, th- this is, so you, it's probably hard to see. Maybe, um, Jim, could you kill the lights? Maybe just, or somebody, you're, you're the first person I saw. You and Isaac can arm wrestle over it. Um, just, you guys get an idea. So that's me, and this is Brian. And you're looking east towards the Decapolis. Behind us is basically a cliff, and this is the location where it happened. You say, well, how do you know that was the location? Well, this is one brilliant spot in Israel because there's like one cliff area. <laughs> and so it makes it really easy. This was taken from a drone. And when we got there, we, we, um, we had Brian share a story. So now I've identified this story with Brian sharing his story and all that he's gone through. And um, very similar stories. But so this is kind of the re- it's, it's pretty. It's grassy area. It's unchanged. So this is kind of the scene over a couple miles. Um, okay, you can, you can kick the lights back on. Um, so he tells us that there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. So they're probably away from this spot, and the swine are around this region because we're standing on the cliff. And so the demons, verse 12, they think, oh, here's a great idea. The demons implore, there's that word again, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave permission. Um, apparently this, I don't, I'm not going to comment so much about the swine and Jesus. Letting the deal. Apparently there's a lot of like, why would Jesus allow this to happen? Um, I, I, th- I would say to that, that throughout the scriptures, Jesus uh, gives human life, um, priority, precedence. That not all life is created the same. Humans are set apart because we bear the image of God. This isn't to say you can't love your animals and, and your, the beautiful creations that God has made. But humans uh, are set above the rest of creation. And so... They suddenly think it's a great idea. Hey, let's go in the pigs. Jesus said, well, all that. And coming out, I don't know what this looks like. Um, but the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the sea bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. So total destruction. Um, some have suggested that this would have been showing like Satan's desires and the demonic realm of... Uh, that the death, destruction, destroying of lives. I don't know how many of you have been around pigs, but those little guys when they start squealing, they're like terrifying animal. Like they're they're loud and terrifying. And to imagine this scene of whatever came out of the man that I don't think you saw it, but when it got into the pigs, this this herd, and to see all these little guys just go crazy to their death and destruction. What a picture of what Satan is trying to do to you and to me in our own lives. 
So we come to verse 14. Their herdsmen are not happy <laughs> about this. The herdsmen aren't really connected to the story so much, but we see now their herdsmen ran away and reported in the city and in the country. So they take off. Their, their whole, their, the herdsmen's economy just was destroyed. They run off and they start letting everybody know what had just happened. And then we're told that the people, so who are the people? The people are the people from the city. The herdsmen went to the city, got the people. I'm just trying to set this straight because the, the pronoun, it gets, dis, it gets complicated to follow who's the who. And so the people came to see what had happened. And so they, that's the people from the cities who came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and they observed the man. Who's the man? Not Jesus. It's the crazy guy, the guy that had been demon-possessed and had been chained and subdued. Everybody knew who this guy was. And so they came to Jesus. They look at the guy. They're observing the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down. Now he's clothed. And in his right mind, so he must be left-handed. So he was blessed in that way, you know, like for the left-handed, for all lefties. See, if you're left-handed, you're in your right mind because it's the, uh, uh, dunk. <laughs> but all the lefties, there you go, you know, we're. But so here's this guy. This, this individual who had been tormented, living amongst dead, the dead people, screaming, cutting himself, a horrific life. Suddenly, now, has clothes on, which is a picture that Mark didn't give us, which if he has clothes on now, you can reverse engineer that to figure out even more of this scene. I really could have highlighted that more, but I'll, God protected you from that. Um, um, <laughs> so now he's clothed, he's in his right mind, he's thinking straight, he's... Like he's a, a normal individual. This is like, I mean, if, they, if this doesn't like bring tears to your eyes, if you can't put yourself in this man's mother's shoes, to think that this baby that some mother adored is now totally redeemed. Be, I mean, this is beautiful. The very man who had the legion, like there's no question that this guy who's sitting there in clothes, in his right mind, that these people came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus. They're looking at the man. They know the man. They observe everything that's happening. They're being, uh, I think, uh, and they became frightened. So that they, the people from the city, they see this whole scene. As they're doing the math, there seems to be fear. I'm not going to call it holy fear. But there's fear that's like maybe raw and unprocessed because they know who this guy is. They see the pigs. They see how the herdsmen are reacting. And they're terrified. Now verse 16, those who had seen it, who's that? That's the herdsmen. So now in verse 16, the story goes along that the city people come to the scene. They see everything. They're terrified. They're scratching their head. The herdsmen say, hey, listen, this is what happened. And so they described it to them, how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. 
Verse 17, and they began to implore him for the fourth time, that word is used. So now who's the they? The they is the city people. The city people come to the scene. They see the pigs. They see the herdsmen. Explain everything that happened. They see this guy who was, who was uh, not well beforehand and for as long as they knew him and for many, many trials, sitting in, his, sitting in clothing, sitting in his right mind, horrified. Now, in taking it all in, their conclusion is to implore Jesus to leave their area which is really a sad state of their priorities. They don't care about this man. They care about their possessions, their economy, their, their well-being, and that this guy, who had been a problem and a terror to them all of their lives, is now healed, but that came at the cost of their possessions, was more than they were happy with, so they say, Jesus... Go back to your area. Um, it, beg, it begs the question, how, how, do you, how do you prioritize people in relation to your possessions and your wealth and all that God has entrusted you to? This, this, this has been an area raising young boys. <laughs> You know, how do I respond to my kids when they draw on the walls with Sharpie? It's been my most real life experience recently with uh, people and property. And but, but like, how do you respond if a kid breaks something on accident? You know, like, and how, I'm sure there's other illustrations, but just my life is filled with two little boys and stuff with accidents <laughs> these days. But it's very easy to put your possessions before people. And I think that there's a lesson here about the priority of, of loving people and investing in other people and giving priority to people so that God might transform them, reach them for Christ. Um, and then we come to verse 18. As he was getting to the boat, so now we're talking about Jesus, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him for the fifth time this desperate call that he might accompany him. I, love, I, I don't know how long Jesus was there. We don't know. This is more than a day. This is more than just like getting there at breakfast time and now it's nighttime. My guess is that the disciples were able to talk Jesus into leaving in the morning the second time after what happened on the way there, but I don't know. Um, but it seems like a few days. And so now it's time for Jesus to leave. And so the man that greeted them now wants to get in the boat and go with them. He's imploring, pleading, Jesus, let me follow you. Let me go. Um, it's interesting because if you go to Matthew's account, you'll see the couple uh, accounts of, um, if my memory serves me right, it's the... Um, the, I think Matthew puts the young, I know it's not the young rich ruler. There's one guy, but the one that comes to mind is the guy who says, I want to follow you, I want to go, but I need to go bury my dad. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. And he basically says, you're not really committed to going. And now coming back, this guy's like, Jesus, I want to come with you. And I think that this guy, 
would have been an awesome disciple. Like, I think that he had everything. I think he shows stuff that Jesus wanted to see, but Jesus' plan for him wasn't the same as the plan of the disciples. He had a different calling in his life. And so in verse 19, Jesus said to him, and he did not let him, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. He says, what you need to do is to go back into those hills, to the Decapolis, those 10 cities that the herdsmen ran to. Go there, share with the people what God, what I've done for you. Share with them the mercy that I've had on you. And this is the part of the story that like grips me. It like, um, it, it takes me back to Bahrain. So Anna and I were um, pre-married I was a deployed SEAL like very early in Bible college, stepping out with like my life, Lord, Lord, whatever you want, I'll do. And as Anna entered the picture, like I really sensed that God was leading me to, to, to kind of where I am now. I didn't know Valley Center, but, but into the, the pastoral ministry, the vocational ministry. And... But during that time in Bahrain, like a lot happened over that six months. And at, at some point early on, I felt like God was saying, Are you, I, what I want you to do is I want you to continue through Bible college and seminary, but I want you to remain an active duty Navy SEAL and to be a missionary within the SEAL teams. And I remember during that window being like this guy, like, let me on the boat. <laughs> Let me out of this place. I don't, I don't want this life anymore. And it was like the Lord and I were having this real, real tug of war to the point where I said, okay, Lord, if you want me to stay in the teams and to go through all this, I'll do it. And in that tug of war, what it led to a conversation with Anna, saying, Anna, I really think that this, this is an option that God wants me to do. And I knew that it would come at a price because not that there was any like ultimatums or anything like that, but Anna felt really clear that she like, I don't really feel called to the military life. And, and if that's the direction you're going, that's God bless you, I love you. We're like, she probably didn't say I love you. But she might have like, but she does now, I know that. And, and <laughs> right? Oh, she turned away from me. I don't know. I don't, uh, but it was like, if that's the direction that your life is going, that's wonderful. But I don't feel like that that's a life that, that God has called me to. So we shook hands over the phone and kind of went our separate ways. Like, that's what, like we, we parted ways. Anna's parents let her like remodel the room and it was kind of, you know, like it was, a sad, it was a sad time. And so my story didn't follow the story that this guy's story went because I felt like once I like surrendered and said, okay, God, if you want me to say the SEAL teams and I do Bible college and do all, like I'll do it and it got to the point where I had the conversation with Anna. We, we separated ways. And a few weeks went by or month or however long. She could probably tell you exactly. And then I felt like God at the end of it like, didn't audibly tell me, but I had peace from him saying, I just wanted to see if you were willing to do whatever. And he said, I want you to, gather, like, I want you to leave the military and to totally leave. No reserves, no nothing, which created a whole new set of fears in my life, <laughs> being eight years from retirement. And, and so that's why I love this story. And now that I've gone far enough, like there's a, there's a part of this story that, uh, 
I'm envious of. And, and for those of you that are in the workplace and are in the world and God has you in those places, man, I'm excited for you because like, the, the ministry, like the ministry is not like this whole idea of vocational ministry. It's not necessarily like the like being in ministry in your secular place of work and in your uh, neighborhood. This is amazing. Like wherever your life goes today, Jesus wants you to share with those that you're in relationships with what He's done for you and how He had mercy on you. This whole story is the, is, is the, it's the gospel in this beautiful story. And if you're in Christ, your life is the gospel in a beautiful story. Your story, not my story, not a Hudson Taylor story, not Amy Carmichael's story, not Billy Graham's story. It's your story. And you've been commissioned to share what God has done for you and how he had great mercy on you. And verse 20, and look at he went away and he began to proclaim. This is, this, this is to proclaim that we see for the gospel going forth. And Decapolis, what great things God has done for him. And everyone was amazed. It's awesome. This guy was faithful to his calling the way that God created him in his personality, in his setting, and everything, he goes out. And if we skip ahead, skip ahead with me. Like this is like flip the pages. Get over to Mark chapter 7. Decapolis, the other side. No, 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 no. <laughs> Nobody wanted Jesus. It left with, get out of here. We don't want you. You're doing destruction. Later in the story, as we get back to verse, chapter 7, verse 31, and he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the sea, uh, to the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Decapolis. This is his first time back since the story. They, who's the they? The people from the city. Brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty and they implored him, there's that word again, to lay his hands on him. They came and these people, great miracles came. Where did these people come from? Last time when they landed here, it was the crazy guy in the tombs. But now that guy has been going around sharing what God did in his life and what great mercy he had. And now when they go back to Decapolis, there are thousands of people. It's believed that the other story of the, the, the multiplication of bread, it's believed that that story happened over there. So going back, we see, we, we see that this guy responds I mean, we don't know absolutely, but like who else was in the Decapolis sharing? It seems that this guy was going out and doing a work in Decapolis because that's what Jesus had called him to do. And just a few points in closing. The, uh, you know, I didn't really go into the whole demonic realm. I'm sorry if some of you really wanted me to go into demons and Frank Preddy and all of that. I, 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 like, I think there's a reality of the demonic realm. Like, there's no, there's no question. And I think C.S. Lewis and his, his uh, screw tape letters, um, it's, it's a great little story of, you know, gr- Grandpa Satan or Father Satan speaking to his son and how they can get the human race. And, and in that book, he says, there, as these two are talking, the father to the son says, you know, the human race concerning us, there's, there's two great heirs that they make and both work in our favor. 
One is to disbelieve in our existence, and the other is to believe or to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them where they, they see us at every corner. Both of those were great for us. So I'm not, by going the direction that I went, I'm not like at all, like I think the de- demonic activity is real. As Christians, I don't think we have to fear it because greater is he that is in you than is in the world. But, but, but to act like when you're out and you see somebody pray for those first responders, pray for the guys and women that are on the streets, pray for the paramedics and the um, ERs. I think that these individuals see demonic activity in far greater like realities than we do. When I look at this story, I look at this man and I see the transformed life. This is an extraordinary picture of a transformed life, but the reality is, is Every one of us have been in bondage to sin and in slavery to sin. Um, whether it's that you're a really good person or that you're dabbling in drugs and horrible family cycles, both of these are bad. And Jesus is offering you a transformed life that you could be totally redeemed as this man was redeemed. All it takes is you coming to his offer and saying, I believe and I want this. And the final thing I want to say is that this man's commission was unique to him. Your calling is unique to you. And I can't tell you how much I struggled as an early Christian trying to figure out what does the Christian life look like for Gunner. Gunner is an oddball. Gunner has his own story. And I thought that I needed to look at a Christian that did whatever and I needed to conform my life into this caricature of, of like whatever I thought the super Christian would be, and it wouldn't work. I was trying to be something that I wasn't. I was trying to be something that God didn't want me to be. And it's taken me and is still a work in progress for God to do his work in Gunner, the Gunner that he created, and to allow Gunner to live out Gunner's life as God has gifted and called Gunner to do, not to be somebody else. Am I preaching? Am I living out my life? And like... However, and so be faithful in living out who God created you to be in his image. Give your life to him. Allow him to lead you in the way that you need to go. Don't try to be like somebody else because you're not somebody else. You're you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you. I thank you for the story. I love the story, Lord. I thank you for the power that's displayed in this guy's life that had been so um, decimated by the evil one. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us not to be naive about the destruction that has been brought about in our lives, um, whether it's by thinking that we're good people or that we literally have difficult family cycles and difficult things that that we have created. Father, we come to you and we ask that you would allow us to um, yield our lives to you, that we would believe and allow you to have your way in our lives. We pray for the transformation, the redemption that the Bible speaks of, that our lives would be transformed, that we would be born again, that we would be made new. And Lord, I pray that you would help us from worrying about other people and trying to be things that you have not called us to be.
Father, give us eyes that desire to please you and to honor you and to bring you glory in all that we do. Father, help us to see what it is that you have called us to be in our business places, in our lives, where our lives meet the world. Lord, help us to confidently and boldly to share what you've done for us and what great mercy you have had in our lives. And we thank you for that, Lord. We love you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.